This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to react to the ongoing battle about pay between John Jones and Dana White. We'll hear from Tyron Woodley's coach, Dean Thomas, as he previews Woodley's fight at UFC Fight Night, Woodley versus Burns against Gilbert Burns. And we'll weigh in on this debate about women's MMA, about whether or not women fighters sexualizing their identity to a degree is bad for the sport. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays at 1 p.m. East Coast time right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. So this is really interesting. Uh, Dana did ESPN, I think Dana White, UFC president, did ESPN yesterday. I know he just did it moments ago. Um, so we actually have got a, a bunch of different pieces of news to react to here. But let's sort of start this where it naturally starts. Okay, let's, let's piece it together from its origin, and then we can go from there. Okay, so here's how it all goes down. However long ago, John Jones tweeted that he was in negotiations with UFC to uh, potentially go up to heavyweight and fight Francis. He wanted more money. He was like live tweeting it. And then he gets out there and says, oh, bad news. They don't want to do it, so I'll just keep fighting at light heavyweight. And you never really know who to believe in these situations. Everyone could be posturing. Posturing is, frankly, part of the negotiation process. So I'm not even saying it's bad faith, per se. It's just, it's just part of what it is, right? And then... Uh, Dana came out and said this to Brett Okamoto. We have two cuts I want to get to because Dana is trying to thread an interesting needle here. On the one hand, they don't want to be leveraged. Remember, we know what fighters get year over year. We have seen the evidence. They get 20% of gross revenue, but that 20% counts the USADA costs. That is somehow considered fighter compensation. So really, it's about anywhere from 16, maybe more so towards 18%. Okay, let's just say 18%. They have formulas about how they keep this stuff for escalating tiers of contracts or, you know, uh, essentially how they allot this. They have they, part of their business plan is built into not exactly to the dime fixed costs, but in general around this 18% mark, they want to be able to rely that that is what fighter compensation will look like year over year. So if you make $100 million one year, you know, 18% is a, a given amount, $18 million, obviously. If you make um, $200 million, it'll be $36 million. So fighter pay goes up, but the percentage stays the same. And so that's the key consideration here. Now, so Dana White, you know, we hadn't heard from him. After John's tweet being like, well, you know, and of course he spoke to MMA junkies John Morgan. He's like, I want more money to go up. I'm taking all the risk. They don't want to reward it. I'm out. Okay. Thought that was the end of it. But then he spoke to Brett Okamoto. Let's hear these two cuts. Here is cut one, him talking about Jones wanting more money. What is your thoughts on John moving up to heavyweight and his real interest in fighting? For listen, it, it's one thing if you come out and say, yeah, listen, I want a, a little more money. The amount of money that John Jones wanted doesn't – first of all, first of all, uh, you, you have – and, and the light heavyweight division, the Dominic Reyes fight is a fight that makes sense. So is, is John Jones going to go in and fight Francis Ngannou, that then try, you know, try to take a run at the heavyweight title? I don't believe that. He's never wanted to move to heavyweight before. Um, you know, and, and for the amount of money he's asking for, it's not going to happen. 
I mean, you couldn't yeah. be asking for a more absurd amount of money uh, at a worse time. Hmm. Okay. So is Dominic Ray still the first option for him then, I would imagine? Dominic yeah. Ray is the I, I mean, yeah. I, you know, he's got guys lined up at, at light heavyweight, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Jan Blakowicz or, uh, or Dominic Reyes. Okay. So funnily enough, um, John Jones took issue with that. Before I get to why, let me just play one more cut where Dana, to his credit, says very nice things about the abilities of John Jones. Let me hear it. There's no debate. There's, John Jones is the GOAT. John Jones is the, is the greatest to ever do it. There's no debate about it. If you look at what the guy has accomplished and what he was doing while he accomplished these things, you know what I mean? It's not like the guy was being good to himself and training hardcore. And, and what's even crazier about the John Jones story is you think of it like this. Look at what he's accomplished. But what's even crazier, imagine what he could have accomplished had he been doing the right thing the whole time, what John Jones could have been. And I'm saying that, and he's never lost a fight. Yeah. You know? You can say, oh, well, people think that he beat him. People think that he beat him. He didn't beat him. The three people that matter said he didn't. Yeah. You know, and you can you can hate our judging all the time. I bitch about our judging. It happens and it's gonna happen. It's never gonna be perfect. But the three people that sit ringside all agree that John Jones has never lost a fight. So yeah. they're the only three that matter. Okay, and uh, I tend to agree with the latter sentiment uh, in terms of the two cuts, not the first. Now, John Jones took to Twitter yesterday to challenge us. By the way, understand the context of playing these two clips. On the one hand, he's saying John wants an exorbitant amount of money. On the other hand, what he's saying is this is the best fighter ever. I would like to know what that number figure is that the best fighter ever can't get a raise. Right, we're not. We're not it, it, from Dana White's own mouth. You are hearing this is the best fighter ever, irrespective of weight class, irrespective of era. This is the guy. Now, John Jones took to Twitter last night and said the following. He retweeted the clip where Dana says this, talking about the amount of money. The first, not the second clip, and says it's interesting to just sit here and watch your boss lie to the camera like this. First of all, not your boss. If you're an independent contractor, you both work for each other. But okay. We never discussed any increase in pay. Immediately, the conversation was that I already made enough. I never made a number offer. If you're not going to change my contract for the heavyweight move, at least have the decency to be honest with the fans. I was over the situation, but I'm not going to sit back and allow Dana to lie to the fans. I never asked for an absurd amount of money. That's BS. And he didn't say BS. He said the word absolute BS, he goes on to say. I'm not going to give up hope the way I'm taking this whole thing is the, is the UFC don't want to budget the John Jones heavyweight move up right now. They should have just said that lying on me and saying I asked for too much is just unfair. That was unnecessary. You already let me down a bit by shutting down this Francis mega fight. Don't add salt to the wound by telling the fans something that's not the truth. If you're wondering, I'm not fighting with UFC. I'm not mad at Dana or beefing. Just surprised they went that route. I said my piece. I'm over it. Okay. Well, now we have an update to the update. We were just going to go with that, but it turns out there's more. Uh, Brett Okamoto of ESPN tweeted about 27 minutes ago at the, at the time of this broadcast, quote, Dana White on first take this morning. And then this is a, a, he attributes this quote. I don't know if it's exactly word for word what 
Dana says, but it obviously it's pretty close. Uh, let me just put it this way. John Jones wasn't asking for $5 million more million. He was asking for an obscene amount of money. And if John Jones wants to speak publicly and say what the number was, that's up to him. Okay, I don't know if there is more to the story beyond just that, but certainly that tells you where they are. Um, John Jones is saying, I merely breached the topic of getting a raise, of wanting more for a particular move, for adopting essentially more risk. That's what all of this came down to, and they no-sold that, according to John, before we were even able to get to a number figure. uh, White seems to keep doubling down on this idea that John clearly has some kind of number figure in mind and the wires appear to be crossed here. I don't know how it can be possible that both are telling the truth. So somebody is clearly in this equation, fudging it a little bit and who is, is up to you. The only thing I know is that one, we know for a fact that the UFC uh, historically pays around 18% fighter compensation. When you exclude USADA costs, for their fights it is what they pay okay um and to me fighters we know for a fact have asked that they get raises for essentially adopting more risk along the way and have been told to go pound sand um i also want to pay attention to something here that i find very interesting which are some payouts that went to the guy um, for Francis Ngannou, uh, who'd be his, his opponent. So I believe, let me look at the uh, UFC 249 bonuses. I want to make sure I get this out because I find this to be very, very important. If you actually look at the bonuses and the salaries for UFC 249, uh, Gaethje and Ngannou were awarded 50000 each for performance of the night. And then Gaethje and Ferguson were awarded 50000 for fight of the night. So if you actually look at the uh, 249 salaries, and I think this includes the bonus. Uh, let me pull this up here real quick. Right. Let's pull this up. What you get with Junkie as saying what the salaries are is, hold on one more time. I want to make sure I get this right. Francis Ngannou got uh, total... From this, as I pull this up, okay, so Francis got 260K. Now, 50,000 of that was, um, what you call it, just a bonus. So really it was 210K, right, because he got the additional piece put on there. I want you to understand something about the pay here, right? We're talking about the most... According to Dana White's own testimony, we're talking about the best fighter of all time in John Jones stepping up a weight class to take on perhaps what the greatest power puncher that the sport's ever seen, who's on a four fight win streak, who has beaten the former champion in Cain Velasquez, right? And, and, and you know, JDS and everybody else. So, uh, if you look at boxing, which is a different model. If I told you Kubrat Pulev, how much did he make? Or Charles Martin or Gerald Washington, how much did they make? Right? Charles Martin, 250K. Gerald Washington, 275K. Can you name two fights that either of those guys have ever been in before? Ever? 
Uh, how about uh, Kubrat Pulev back in uh, November of 2019? Made 250K. Can you name three fights that guy has been in, unless you're a hardcore fight fan? Uh, Otto Valin to fight Tyson Fury, right? No one had really heard of him before, certainly not outside of hardcore boxing circles, 250K. Uh, let's see. Tom Schwartz to fight Tyson Fury. Low seven figures. By the way, that was just a guarantee for Otto Valin as well. That was just a guaranteed purse. So he actually got more than that. So he probably got you know, a million or two, maybe more. Uh, Tom Schwartz, same thing. Low seven figures, guaranteed purse of 250K. Okay. Uh, Andy Ruiz, before he fought, before he fought Anthony Joshua, got 200K. So you're talking about cases where you're having unknown, relatively unknown heavyweights getting at right commensurate, let's say, with what Francis is making. And that includes only when Francis's bonus is put in there. You've got Andy Ruiz making commensurate before he even fought Joshua. And then the guys who fought Tyson Fury in what were considered to be tune-up fights had guarantees on par with what Francis made and then had, you know, uh, uh, beyond that low seven figures, what they ultimately took home for both. Francis asked for a raise and couldn't get one. Greatest fighter ever, by Dana White's own testimony, asking for more and couldn't get one. And then we know from the court documents that they pay around 18% year over year for fighter revenue. Listen, it's the same question as before. I don't really know who's telling the truth. Is John telling the truth that there was no number figure? Or is Dana telling the truth that this is, uh, uh, there's a real number figure and John is reluctant to say it? You're allowed to choose which one? You're probably better off taking each of these results and these comments with a grain of salt. But here's what I kind of know for sure. You have historic, demonstrated, on paper, underpaying of UFC fighters year over year, weight class over weight class, tier over tier. Not just low end or mid tier, but also high tier as well. This week on World of Basketball, director of USA Basketball, Jerry Colangelo joined the show and spoke about how blown away he was by high schooler Kobe Bryant's workout ahead of the 1996 NBA draft. We brought him out for, for an interview and, uh, and a workout. I mean, even his physical presence at that time and his confidence level and his ability level was, it blew you away. I said this, and I know Jerry West said this, that it was the best workout they've ever ever hit. Same same applies to us in Phoenix. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. It is the one and only Dean Thomas. Hi, Dean. How are you? I'm good, man. Thank you for having me. How are you? I am missing you, Dean. I'm missing your insight. So I knew we had to get you uh, back on the show. Well, let's 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 start with things here with Tyron. Boy, this is a big fight for him, huh? Coming off 15 month layoff, a loss. Uh, Gilbert Burns is no joke. He's 38. You know, would you say that this is a a pretty critical fight in his career? Absolutely. I mean, this is the fight that's going to tell whether he's going to get his belt back or or maybe he should just hang it up. You know, this is one of them them moments of where you're at a crossroads. So um, we did everything we could to prepare the best we can. He's looking sharp. He's mentally and physically ready, and we're ready to go tomorrow. All right, so let's talk about Gilbert Burns. Um, Size him up as an opponent for me. What is he good at? 
he's good at a lot of things, man. He's, he's a great grappler. You know, I've always been a fan of his in the grappling world, even before he started MMA. So I've known about him. He's a great grappler. He's got a lot of power, puts a lot of pressure on people and he, he fights pretty fearlessly. So, um, these are all different obstacles that we're going to have to overcome tomorrow night. But, uh, you know, that's part of the fight game. That's what we do. We, we accept the challenge. We take it on, we figure it out and we make it work. So let me ask the question this way. Is it fair to call Gilbert Burns a younger, more athletic Demi and Maya, or is that an inaccurate comparison? Yeah, I think that's a very inaccurate comparison. I think that, um, you know, they got different styles. I mean, Damian Maya is long and lanky, and he's a little bit slower and more, a little bit more methodical. I think Gilbert's a lot more explosive and powerful. Uh, he's, he's he's kind of a wrestler type with great jiu-jitsu so, and, and good power in his hands. Um, you know, he's, he's a lot more dangerous to Damian Maya because there's a lot more things you got to worry about with him. But Damian Maya was just, you know, don't let this guy get on your back. And that was about it. But, you know, Gilbert Burns, you know, he's a good back taker, good pressure on top. He's got good power on both hands. So I was going to ask about the power, too, because he's one of these guys who came from 155 has now gone up to 170. Tyron's a guy, you know, because we have this thing. It's like Connor's ranked 14th at welterweight. And I'm not here to say whether that's good or it's bad. It's just it is what it is. But to me, I make a distinction in my mind between guys who uh, went to 155 and then to 170 and then guys like Tyron who couldn't make 155 because of their natural size if their lives depended on it still as much power as Gilbert has what do you make of these guys coming up from 155 do they really have true welterweight power I'm not sure you know I, I, that's the one thing that we're going to find out that's that's the question that's the reason why we fight to see if we can answer these questions I'm not sure I don't know if, if him going to 170 was just a matter of him saying I'm tired of cutting weight I don't feel like fighting at 155 anymore and it's just easier to fight at 170 if that's the case then his power won't be much of a factor but if, if he's just naturally gotten bigger and just it's hard for him to make 155 then you know he should still be able to carry his power with him but uh, we're going to find out <laughs> that's it you know those are the questions that we have to figure out you know in that first minute of the fight well in terms of like we you know uh this is by woodley's own admission he did a media day yesterday which you know i'm sure you're aware of and in it he had talked about a couple mm-hmm. of things which was the one was you know he said he went into the usman fight they thought all the t's were crossed and the eyes were dotted and he still kind of lost and it forced him to like reconsider like how is it possible i could do what i thought were all the right things and it resulted in this overwhelming loss i'm wondering i mean without telling us the whole story here like, is there any way for fans to understand what that meant in terms of changes relative to this camp? I think that was um, a matter of, you know, he trained, we trained properly for the fight. There's no doubt about that for the Usman fight. We trained properly, but there were still distractions in his life. There was still him juggling too many balls. I mean, he was, you know, the week before he did a concert with, with Khalifa and he was on Family Feud and he was, he was doing all this different stuff. And while he was got, he has been able to get away with that in the past, I think it just kind of caught up to him. You know, like you said, he's 38 years old. I think it just caught up to him. So even though we trained hard, he had all these different things that he was still juggling, and he cut it all out. You know, and, and it wasn't due to the fact that we were quarantined from the coronavirus. He just cut it all out. He said, you know what? I know what my priorities are right now. I know what I need to do in order to get to get it back, and that's to put fighting first. I can still do all the other stuff, but I need to put fighting first. He put fighting first, and that's all we did for the last three or four months. It was training. 
Interesting. I mean, maybe he would have done it without the coronavirus. Is there a way to say that the lockdown, I don't know, did it help in a way or something? Yeah, I do. I do think it helped in a way, but it was going to happen regardless. Like just, I could see it in his eyes. Like I know him, I know him so well now just from being around him so long and I could see it in his eyes that this is really what he wants. I mean, I think that the, because even before the coronavirus, we had started training before everything got locked down and we were in Atlanta and all we did was go from the Airbnb to the gym. We didn't even stop to eat. He was getting meals delivered and it was Airbnb gym. This was before the lockdown. So I know that it wasn't just because we were locked down. It, It cut everything out. So who was the coaching staff this time? Obviously, you're the uh, mainstay. Who else is around him? It's the uh, the gentleman's name I-, I could never remember out of Atlanta, the great striker. Um, who, who else is Manu. there? Manu, that's it. Uh, that, th- yeah, that was, that was pretty much it this time. It was just me and Manu uh, handling you know the coaching aspect of it. And then we brought in, um, we had some guys sparring with him, Lucien Corbray, and uh, early on it was uh, Will Brooks who did some work with him and and uh, Tony Martin. So, I mean, we was getting good work uh, really early on. And then as things were getting extended, it was just like me and Moussin Corbray putting a lot of work in with him. Would you believe maybe like 15 years ago, not even like 14 years ago, I trained with Moussin. How is he doing? He's doing great, man. Moussin is my boy. He's a, he's a very underrated individual. I didn't realize this about him, but he's got three, he's got three, undergraduate degrees and two master's degrees. (laughs) He was always, whenever you talk to him, a very smart guy in general, but he always, to me, I'm going to say this kind of as a compliment, Dean. I thought that he was a bit of an underperformer in combat sports relative to what I thought he understood about the game. Every time he spoke, I like sat in silence because I thought he was such a, such a great mind for the sport. He is. He still is. And you're right. He just, he, that is a compliment. I mean, he always underperformed, never really reached his maximum potential as a fighter. But um, he's still doing great things, and he was very helpful in this camp. I, I will admit that. All right. Here's the other part about Woodley that's been kind of interesting. He's made these comments that, you know, listen, he says uh, I had to go back and I had to reconcile why I lost. And he's looking forward to them competing in a, a quiet arena. I have to tell you, Dean, I mean, we know fighters say a lot of things before fights, you know, that sometimes afterwards they take immediately back. But it does sound like he's got a bit of a no excuses vibe this time. Is that fair? Yeah, it's very fair. I mean, there's, you know, there's nothing that I can think of that, really get in the way of his of him performing other than that you know Gilbert is just better you know but I don't see that being the case because you know we did everything we did everything we could his camp was long and he's he's in the best shape I've ever seen him I've never seen him do as many rounds and have the energy that he has than I've seen in this camp I mean even, even more so than Darren Till and all that Tell me how that's possible at age 38. Like what, what could be the difference? Is he just dieting better? Is he doing, I mean, how could it be that 38 he's got better, better energy for this kind of thing? You know, it it sounds like the weird, a weird thing, but again, I I do believe it comes down to the fact that it was just his focus this time. You know, there was no distractions and he's been training since, you know, since November, December, like he started his camp in, in Thailand, then we brought it back to the States, and then we were in Atlanta, then St. Louis, back to Atlanta. And we've just been training this entire time. So it's just been grind, grind, grind. He's learning his rhythms, his rhythm, his timing. Everything is just impeccable right now. 
Hmm, interesting. Now, the question is about what happens if he wins. And I've said, you know, I don't think they're going to give him a title shot if he wins, even emphatically, because, listen, there's Jorge Masvidal still kind of floating out there. We don't really know what's going to happen. And this isn't news to you. I don't think that his run as welterweight champion, while certainly a, a very decorated one, uh, the UFC didn't necessarily embrace him 100%. So what would you say would be the next step? I'm not saying that, you know, we need to uh, listen, you got to get through Saturday first. I understand, but it seems to me like a showdown with Colby, it might be inevitable. Do you agree or no? Yeah. I mean, I love this division. I mean, you think about it, there's so many different matchups you could make because as there's history with everybody between Colby and Masvidal and Usman, like there's history with all these guys. So you can match up any of these guys. The only person who doesn't kind of fit in it is Gilbert Burns, but now he's in it now because he's fighting tyrant, but all these, you know, there's a lot of matchups to make. I'm hoping that he can put up a strong enough performance that the people demand him to get his belt back because he's the only champion that never really got it. Cause they got the dude that he deserved. I mean, think about it. I mean, he defended the title four times and he had one bad performance and they just totally wrote him off of getting a title shot or, get, mm-hmm. or getting his belt back. So like, hopefully a strong performance could, you know, he could, you know, plead his case to say, I want another title shot. What would be better? Like a three round dominating performance or like a knockout in 90 seconds? A knockout in 90 seconds. Okay, but a three-round performance is a much greater example of what he can do. It sure is, but but we like we like we like scariness. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Like when we when Francis Ngannou knocks guys out in the first round, that's what we oh nobody wants to fight him. That's what's scary. So I think that that's what's going to attract people. That's just such a scary thing because even with a three a three round performance, like that's that's great. That's something that we go man. He's so much improved. He looked fantastic. But then you know they could always be like, well, he should have finished earlier. But you knock the guy out in a couple seconds. That's a wrap. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, Dean Thomas joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. All right, Dean, let me ask you a couple of questions here. Uh, speaking of Colby, parting ways with American Top Team, I wonder if you have any reaction to that. Not at all. I mean, I, I, I mean, it's, I can't say I'm surprised. Um, I, I knew it was. I knew it was coming. I just, I just feel like, um, you know, what took him so long. You know, the, I mean, he wasn't. In a, in a really an integral part of the team. He wasn't like the best teammate to everybody. I mean, he came in and got what he wanted from the team and then would split and then talk trash about everybody. So like he wasn't the best teammate. So I think he should have probably removed himself a long time ago. What is the relationship between the gyms in the South of Florida? Like do MMA masters and ATT have a rivalry? Is it like there's no beef, but there's no friendship either? What is it? Yeah, there's, there's really no, like right now, there's really no real beef, but there's still no friendship. There, but there's but there's always this this underlying tension between uh, you know the old black Zillions and American Top Team. I think that's always going to exist. Um, oh. But there's no real beef. But I tell you, there's still friendships. Though there's you know you you are loyal to one side or the other. There's no cross training. And I, sometimes I envy other places. Like I was in it, being in Atlanta. You know, a lot of the gyms cross train, but that doesn't happen in South Florida. If you're with one team, you better stay with that team or else, or you're out. Hmm. That old, that old jujitsu crianch nonsense, right? Yeah, it is. I don't, I don't really like it. And that's, that's, you know, I'm, I'm just happy to be able to branch off and do my thing and go, 
I'm not with anybody. If somebody wants some work, if I'm valuable enough to you, then come see me. If but I'm not trying to affiliate with, with any teams and have any, you know, underlying beef. Uh, and then last but not least, let's assume uh, that your answer to my next question would be Tyron. So I'm going to make you say you can't say Tyron. So your answer cannot okay. be Tyron to the next question. Who is the toughest matchup in the welterweight division? Again, Tyron excluded for Kamaru Usman. Um, I would have to say Masvidal. Tell me why. I think, yeah, I think Masvidal is for sure. And if I had, if I had to pick another one, I'd probably say Jeff Neal. Jeff, why Jeff Neal? That's interesting. I think I think he's a dark horse, man. I think that um, I think he's got a lot, of, and maybe not even right now, but I think he's got a lot of potential, and I think people have slept on him, but I think that he's I think he's coming up. I think he's going to. I think he's going to do great. That's interesting. He obviously trains with a good team, but uh, give me the sense about why you have confidence in uh, Masvidal's chances. What is it? I mean, obviously we know he's well-rounded, but um, so, sort of lay out the case for me. Yeah, you know, Masvidal's well-rounded, and he possesses all the things that you need in order to be champ or beat the champ. He's He's got the skills on his feet. He's got the skills on the ground. He can wrestle, and he's got the experience. He doesn't make stupid young mistakes. He's got experience, so even if he does get in trouble, he's not going to panic. Um, you know, and and Usman is a longer type fighter, so like Usman doesn't like put people away. So I think the longer the fight goes, I think the the it gives Masvidal more chances to win. So um, even though Usman Usman does smother you, I just think that Masvidal just got too many skills, too many places that. Um, He's going to find a way within 25 minutes to beat Usman. All right, before we let you go, just a couple more of these questions. He could find a way. I'm not saying he will, but he could. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, We saw this controversy about Smith and Teixeira and the late stoppage. I don't want to ask about Mm -hmm. that, but something different, which was Daniel Cormier suggesting that, you know, a corner like shouting advice constantly uh, is just not the way to go. What is the right way to give advice throughout the course of a bout? How do you do it? I don't shout. I try not to shout at all. Um, I think that it's distracting. I think that you get in the way of the fighter doing the thinking for themselves. And, you know, the fighter can't instinctively make great decisions when you're constantly yelling at them. I think that um, it should be used sparingly and coaches should allow the fighter. They should trust the fighter and they should coach them properly to be able to make good decisions during the fight. Then I think that it should be a little bit more like baseball. They need to have some some key words that may spark some type of inspiration for them to do something. But the idea of coaches telling their fighters, throw the right hand, throw the right hand, it's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's, it's really kind of silly. Like you're telling the opposition what you want your fighter to do. It's kind of, kind of silly, actually. The only time you would get frantic if it was a really desperate situation, right? They're getting pounded on yeah, from mount or something. If it's really desperate. If it's really desperate, then, or... You know, when you're just like, you know what, I don't care no more. Just, you need to take down, go get it. That's the only time. But, you know, other than that, you know, MMA people need to be a little smarter. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. they're just not very smart sometimes. So then lastly, in this quiet arena, it sounds like you won't really have to adjust your style very much because you don't say a whole lot anyway when the other people can hear you. Yeah, I'm not going to have to adjust my style at all. You know, sometimes like I'll be co- I'll be cornering a fighter, and, and mostly what I'm doing is just analyzing, looking for ways that they could have done something, or maybe they can get back to it so that I can 
speak to him in between rounds because that's when I really need to get to him is in between rounds. Because if I'm talking to him during the round, again, they're not fully invested in the moment of what they're doing. They can't think properly because they're, they're concentrating on listening to what I'm saying. And I don't want to have to do that to my fighter. I want my fighter to be thinking and reacting on their own and instinctively making good decisions that we worked on in practice. That's why training is important. Fair enough. All right, Dean. Well, you got your work cut out for you tomorrow, but it sounds like you guys are ready. Really looking forward to this main event. It'll be on ESPN. Uh, Appreciate your time, Dean. Thank you so much, and we can't wait to see the fight. Thank you for having me, man. We'll talk soon. WWE legend, The Undertaker. I have tried my hardest to protect kayfabe. Honestly, just within the last couple of years, I mean, I would cringe when I would hear people, you know, like we're doing now, like talking openly about behind the scenes stuff. It would just like, I, I'd grit my teeth and this, I think I was the real last holdout to, to kayfabe. Listen to Busted Open's interview with WWE legend, The Undertaker, on demand now via the SiriusXM app. Just search Busted Open Interviews now free for most subscribers we're asking a very basic question here do y'all think that female fighters sexualizing their identities uh, at least as it relates to like their public identities does that undermine women's mma 877 fight 93 877 344 4893 so two fighters got into it one a bellator fighter one a ufc fighter i'm sure i'm mispronouncing her name so please forgive me one is macy chiasson or chiasson however you pronounce it chiasson she is i think she trains with safe saud out of uh, fortis mma and she responded uh to a video on twitter although um, i think the original video was on tiktok or something i don't know she's six and one in her pro career and she said i can't take it anymore it was a mess it was a, a responding to a video where Loretta. Valerie Loretta out of Bellator, who we've had on the show, who was doing some kind of dance and, uh, you know, anyway, shaking her rear end. I'm sure you've seen it if you're a dude. Um, Anyway, so Macy wrote, is this the message we want to continue to convey to not only our future leaders, but to the disgusting, already misogynistic dudes out there? Are we here to fight and be role models? Are we here to be for male followers and strip teases? Now, Loretta, for her part, responded, girl, by putting other women down, you're contradicting yourself. Who said I do anything for my male followers? I've been fighting since I was two years old, and just like you, have other interests like tattoos. I like to dance. L- LMAO. Simple. Macy responded, I'm all for women being strong and sexy, but this really isn't it. You're in your MMA gear at your gym, gloves, mouthpiece, and shin guards on. You're portraying the wrong message to people who watch this sport. You're portraying that this is what women's MMA is about. Loretta, nah, it shows you can be a strong, feminine, and sexy and still be a bad bitch. In a male-dominated industry, hashtag facts. Macy, but are you, though? Some of us actually care about the quality of women's MMA and women's sports in general. You're, you're selling sex, not MMA. Um, Loretta says, I'm selling sex because I was born with a different body than you, and I'm Hispanic. I fight in a cage just like you do, and I'm not in a cage. I'm extremely feminine, and I was born like that. Stop hating. Jason responds, yes, you fight in a cage, but not like I do, and don't talk to me like I don't know what femininity means. And then Loretta says, do you and stop harassing other women who embrace their femininity. And then Macy says, to wrap things up, based on what you've said, your definition of embracing femininity is very narrow, and that's really sad. Again, you know nothing about my femininity. It's really sad. Anyway, you can go and read uh, whatever else you want there. So this was an interesting debate that I thought. And this is one of those debates where it's like, you know, oh, what does 40-year-old white guy have to think about it? All right, so let me take calls on this. 877-FIGHT-93, 
Do y'all think that Macy is right or that Valerie is right about what these kinds of videos, where they're dancing in bikinis or whatever else they're doing, uh, is bad for women's MMA? I thought about this one when I first saw it because remember, this is not all that dissimilar from what Curtis Blades was accusing people of or women of, right? He was accusing them essentially, what, I'm not saying you have to agree, but it, it, the, the criticism is fairly similar between Macy and Curtis that there are fighters who are women who are trying to prove their merit by their skills that they show in fights. And then there are some who are just trying to use uh, sexual titillation as a way to advance their career. And, you know, you can't take them seriously. And there's the, he thought that the balance between the two was not was not really right, that it was the, the, the balance was tilting in the favor of, of sexual titillation. So let's just call it like we see it here a little bit which is really what this show is about. I'll tell you where I come down on all of this, to be honest with you. I, I, I thought about it. I don't think that Macy's point would, is altogether wrong. I just don't think it applies to what we actually have happening. So there's two ways to address it. Let me give you the most obvious one. If someone didn't know anything about MMA and you were trying to teach them about MMA, you'd probably start with the men's game. That's only natural. The, the men's game is larger. There's more weight classes. It's certainly more developed. It's got a wider participatory rate. You, you would just start there. But the story of MMA is that not merely do men compete, women compete as well. So you'd have to acknowledge that women's MMA is not on par uh, with men's. For example, there's not nearly as many weight classes, um, even the ones that are typically, you know, uh, women's strawweight's pretty deep. But in general, the weight classes are not especially deep. Right. And so you can just sort of tell that also the best practices aren't necessarily on par with the men's game either. But here is where I fail to really accept Macy's point. And granted, you know, she's going to feel differently about this by virtue of her gender and then her position in the sport. She probably feels like she's on a mission to prove something that she believes Valerie and her conduct is impeding. But you notice what one of her comments here, one of her comments is, uh, let's see here. Some of us actually care about the quality of women's MMA. So if you could reasonably look around and you could say that there is a difference between men's and women's MMA in terms of its quality and its breadth and its depth, you'd be right. That is actually accurate. The problem with Macy's argument, as best I can tell, is that women's MMA has gotten significantly better and continues to every month, every year. How do we know that? We know it a couple of different ways. First, we had a fight recently, granted it was in strawweight, that Wiley Zhang fought Yuan Jijek. I mean, this is one of the best fights I've ever seen, irrespective of weight class or gender. And to boot, um, an absolute barn burner for 25 minutes with elite best practices between both competitors, right? I mean, you're talking about just an all-time amazing contest. I, I don't know that that was possible five years ago to get a fight like that of that quality. That's only doable by virtue of the growth into additional weight classes and the UFC sort of being able to compensate them and you know, give them a path to financial uh, gain relative to other promoters, and then for just the game to advance itself. 
right? So that's the first part. The second part is, you know, I've been doing this show uh, on Showtime, sure, Showtime Extreme, where we have to go back and look at old fights. Dude, I went back and I watched the women's fights from 2010, you know, and these are like some of the better fights of that era, and they're just not even remotely on par with what you see today. The, the athletes aren't as good. The striking's not as good. Uh, you know, the, 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 the fight IQ isn't nearly on par. I mean, it isn't even close to what it is today. Like, there's plenty. Frankly, it's obvious if you go back and just look. Women's MMA has gotten so far and continues to get better. So, like, if, there were, if, the, if you were rolling up on a situation where the men's game was as it is, and then you had to explain to someone, okay, so not only is the women's game not as good, but it's like a bit of a sideshow where they're just, you know, it's just the fighting is terrible and, you know, they're just acting like strippers and, you know, it's not, it's not even close to the men's game. Maybe Macy would have a point because at that point you would have the situation where the focus and the energy would have shifted in a completely different direction. And then you could say, yeah, you know what, this is really, it's become something utterly different it's not even close to what the men have and again i'll be clear like women's mma is not on par with men's but that's not for a lack of effort and it's not for a lack of improvement and it's not for a lack of real substantive meaningful change dude invicta has done a lot to fix a lot of the weight class problems and develop a, a talent pipeline for women's mma um and and the financial compensation that you can get being a women's MMA fighter in UFC and other parts. I mean, that's done a, a great service to recruit and um, the fan base accepting women as a legitimate part of, you know, the combative UFC experience and MMA experience has, you know, I mean, radically. When I started watching women's MMA on television, this is true. They were fighting three minute rounds. They were fighting three minute rounds. They fight five Minute rounds for five rounds for championship bouts like they did against Zhang Wiley and against Yuani and Jacek. By every measurement, women's MMA is getting better. Now, you could make the case, I suppose, if you wanted, that what people like Valerie Lareda are doing, like absent that, women's MMA would be further along. But I don't even know how you would make that argument. I mean, that doesn't seem true. Right. You might be saying it's distracting. You might be saying it sends mixed messages. All right, you know, maybe there's something to that. I don't, I don't really know the totality of this, this, I, this, this argument, but it, it, is there really clear evidence that this kind of thing sets back women's MMA? I just don't, what would the evidence be? I don't see it. I don't, I don't, I don't know where you would find it. I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't occur to me. Uh, every me metric tells us quite literally the exact opposite. And look, let's just call it what it is <clears throat> beyond just the fact that MMA has improved for the men's game and the women's game. Um, dude, this is a sport that's entertainment driven and the fan base is predominantly male leaning on, um, <laughs> you know, your looks, uh, as a way to curry favor with the fan base is an obvious thing that people are going to do because it holds significant career reward. Now, when I say career reward, what do I mean? Certainly visibility, potentially money, sponsors, 
Um, maybe in the case of Bellator, it'll get you a little bit more of accommodated matchmaking. But in the end, there's kind of a limit to it. You know, Paige Van Zandt's probably seen the upper bound limit of what you can get out of something like that. Um, and even Ronda, who reached championship status, where she was, you know, both the sort of figure of male adoration and a championship level fighter for a time, you know, she leaned into that kind of thing a little bit too. And all it did was elevate her stock and elevate the overall visibility of the game, which again helped push the game forward. In the cage of Paige Van Zant, I don't think that we've seen enough of a, you know, there, she, she's not been a championship caliber fighter or one that I think has really wowed people with her overall level of fighting ability. So there's been a bit of a, there's been a bit of a ceiling in how far that could be pushed. So, okay, fine. But like, you know, people on the men's side are going to use anything that the male fan base responds to as well, which can be, you know, clever trash talk or, you know, the kind of thing that McGregor does in terms of bravado and whatever, like any kind of thing unrelated to your actual ability to fight, to generate attention for your career, you're going to do, and you're going to get rewards from it, but you're going to have a hard time making the case that one, you can just ride that to a scenario where you're upending the game on its head and, people who are much more deserving of opportunities are going to lose out to you. Again, that's going to happen on occasion, but it, it, not in totality. And it, that, that, has a, that has a limit unless you can actually win the fights, the big ones. And then also, you're going to have a very hard time making the argument, as far as I can tell, that this damages the game. Maybe if there was too much of it, that'd be the case. But whatever limit we have, or whatever amount we have, women's MMA has only gotten way better. And there's no reason to think why it won't continue to get way better. I, I just, I, I'm not saying that there couldn't, I couldn't imagine a world where it'd be a case where one side of the sport was legitimate and one was a sideshow, but it's not the one that we have. I'll just say this in all, in any kind of, uh, in any kind of industry where a woman has good looks and you can say this is good or you can say this is bad, but it appears to be, I don't want to overly generalize, but I think this is true. So like, for example, this would not be the case per se with doctors or maybe it is, but I, you know, I'm going to exclude them in this case. But anybody who has a job as a woman where you have a public facing part of your job. So as a fighter, you clearly, you know, between your life on social media and then the fact that you fight on national television and that you interact with fans at expos and blah, 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 blah. Anytime you have a job that's public facing like that, and you're an attractive woman, it's going to confer benefits upon you. This is merely the world in which we live. I mean, that, that's just, that, you can like that fact or you can hate that fact. That's just the reality. The question is, what effect does that have on the sport in general? And to me, the argument that it harms it, uh, again, I, maybe it's a case of it, if we had reached a tipping point where it was so ubiquitous that it was just overwhelming, that might be the case. But it seems to me it's actually fairly rare. I mean, not rare relative to how many men do it. There's not a lot of men's only fans accounts, but um, in terms of the totality of women, it, it, there is just nothing but evidence that the game's gotten better and continues to get better. And the other part is I understand Macy's point too. Macy is making the argument as, as best I understand it, which is, you know, you don't, it's the opposite. You actually don't have to look this way to be respected as a fighter. Uh, and I'm not going to sit here and say that she doesn't, you know, I don't know what her life is like, right? I don't know what forms of pushback she gets or, you know, how she internalizes some of these challenges. It's just a hard thing to understand. Um, 
but you know, I understand her perspective too, which is I would like to be known by my craft. You know, I'd like to be known by my craft and not by anything else. Uh, okay, fair enough, man. I don't think that's an unreasonable request per se, but here's the problem. Let me just leave you with a story that I love to share at this moment in time, which is I remember the first time I did a national television appearance, like a lengthy one. You know, I was in studio for something. And, uh, you know, I turned off my phone to go do the appearance. And, uh, you know, I, and I remember like, you know, the, the producers told me ahead of time what we were going to talk about. So I'd done some research and, you know, really prepared and really thought about what I was going to say. And I, you know, I said to myself, okay, man, I'm not going to get a lot of opportunities like this. So I'm going to go in there and I'm going to wow everyone with my knowledge, with my reasonableness. You know, I'm going to make a strong opinion about this, but I'm going to make it count. I'm going to, I'm going to stand out for my area edition. Right. And then, uh, it went well, I thought. Talked to the producers. Everybody loved it. Great. Turn my phone on. Get on social media. And the only responses I was getting on Twitter were just about my appearance. Good, good and bad. Everything in between. You know, hey, I like Luke's haircut. Oh, Luke was wearing the worst shoes ever or whatever. But it had nothing. There was no response to what I was saying. Which isn't to say that that doesn't happen. Of course it does. But it was just a lesson in like what a visual world that we live in is like when you're, when you're sort of in a more prominent position at times. It's a, I mean, people make a lot of judgments, good or bad, about this kind of thing. And I think trying to fight that is trying to piss into the wind a little bit, you know, which doesn't say you have to give in and everyone has to do it. No, it's not exactly what, right, the right thing. But, you know, if the game is improving and people are doing that kind of thing, uh, my, my, my rule is I tend to lay off. That's the way I would look at it. That's my opinion. Macy could disagree. You might disagree as well. A different discussion for a different time. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas show live and in its entirety weekdays from three to 6 PM. Eastern on Sirius XM fight nation channel 156. on Twitter. Follow at L Thomas news and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.